0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 30 and then skip down to, and read uh, 39 to 42 grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, Near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all this way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or what do you, why did you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Skipping down to 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as I preach your word that you would anoint my mouth and that you would cause us all to hear your word by your Spirit. May you use this word to mold us to be like your Son, Jesus. And Father, may we not be those who hear the word and forget it, but may we be those who hear and do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So back in the first book of the Bible, we learn about the patriarch Jacob and his son Joseph. In Genesis, we read uh, about a place called Shechem, It keeps popping up in the book, Um, and we believe that this sicker is Shechem, uh, named in the, uh, the sicker that's named in our passage today. What happened there? What happened in Shechem? Well, God appeared to Abraham. Right. I mean, if, if only that happened in Shechem, then it would be a significant place in redemptive history. That's Genesis 12. Uh, it's also the place where Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was taken by force by Hamor. Ham, yeah, Hamor. And her brothers then, uh, you remember, killed the Shechemites. Genesis 34. Slaughters it. Jacob is unhappy. Um, with them, Joseph's uh, brothers fled uh, or fed their flocks in Shechem, and would see him uh, would see Joseph there for the last time before his time in Egypt. Genesis thirty-seven. Israel took possession of the land of Canaan in Shechem, in Joshua chapter twenty. Shechem then became a city of refuge, one of one of a few cities of refuge. Uh, Joshua gathered all the tribes to Shechem and addressed them there for the last time. So his departing speech to Israel is in Shechem. Uh, The bones of Joseph were buried in Shechem as well as the other patriarchs. All the events that took place regarding Abimelech happened in Shechem, Judges 9. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam dwelt there as they led their kingdom, right? And uh, the two hills you remember, Ebal and Gerizim, uh, the mounts of blessing and cursing were in this neighborhood. If you're in Shechem, you're seeing those two mounts. So it's a significant city in the history of Israel. And with and, and even more so now with the visit of the Son of God. It is a significant city now more so than ever before. As to this well of Jacob, we don't, we don't read about it anywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, we read of Abraham and Isaac digging wells, uh, but, but not Jacob. But apparently Jacob did, and Jesus is now at that well. Now notice in verse 6 what it says about why Jesus is sitting by Jacob's well. It says, so Jesus being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Jesus was tired. Why? Because, because he had a human nature. Right? Yes, Jesus was God. Human and divine natures in one person, though, but that does not mean that he had a body like a superhero or that the divine overrode those, the, 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 the human nature, right? He had a body like our own, and so he experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced muscle cramps, right, and sickness. He was weary from travel. We all know how travel can be wearying, especially in that region of the world on foot, right? That the Son of God in the flesh was subject to the weakness of the body shows just how humble he was in coming to redeem your souls, right? That the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, happily dwelling in the presence of his Father and the Holy Spirit would take on this part of us that is just so filled with complications, right? And aches and pains. That God would be subject to thirst, right? That God would be subject to muscle fatigue is a wonderful indication of just how far God was willing to go to redeem you, to save you from your sins. And, And also, it should cause you to rejoice that Jesus can then sympathize in all of your physical infirmities, He knows exactly what it feels like, right? Jesus knows what it is to suffer in the body. He knows our aches and pains. He knows our very weakness, having experienced it himself in the flesh. J.C. Ryle says he knew the heart of a weary man. You know, so it's not even just that you're weary in body. It's that the weariness of the body affects the heart, right? It just, it, it, um, it weighs heavy on us. He, knew, he, knew, he knows the heart of a weary man, so let him know when you are weary. Right? Let God know when you're weary because he knows what it is to be weary. He will then come to your aid as a, as a man who's experienced all that weariness, save the weariness that comes from your own sins. That weariness Jesus knows nothing about because he did not sin. Jesus is tired. He's sitting at the well. Along comes a Samaritan woman looking to draw water for herself. As she approaches the well to draw the water, Jesus initiates the conversation, giving her a command. He looks at her and says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. It's hard to give commands to strangers, isn't it? Um, It's very hard to give commands to strangers. We might ask for a favor. We may do something like that. And, and I take this, you know, he, he's not, I don't think, he's not being pugnacious. He's, he is overstepping boundaries for sure, but, but he's, he's asking for a drink. Give me a drink. Now we've read the rest of the story and the conversation that occurs between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus has knowledge of her and of her ways, right? So she's not unknown to him. He has knowledge of her and her ways, but he doesn't lead with that. Right? He doesn't launch into the husband thing, though he does get there, OK? He begins by this command by asking a favor of her. It seems impolite, seems almost aggressive, seems demanding, and yet and it is for a purpose. It is for a purpose. He's entering into that Samaritan woman's world, and he's going to provoke a conversation with her. And this is his means of provoking it. He begins talking about water. Give me a drink. He's talking about thirst and water, and that becomes the topic of the whole conversation. So often, you and I, we, we tend to spend our time trying to figure out how to avoid conversations with people, don't we? We just, we, or we try, if we have to talk with people, we find the quickest escape route to finish the conversation off without any controversy coming up. That's not true of all of you. Some of you are weird extroverts that I don't understand and never will understand, Renton. Um... But so often we do spend, and, and all of us when we're tired, we spend time trying to avoid conversations with people. They say something, right? We'll engage with somebody. They say something to us, and we know it could be an opening for conversation about spiritual things, but we do our best to act like, well, we didn't quite hear that, or we respond with some mundane comment that we know will, will stifle the conversation, will bring it to a close very quickly. And we look back down to what we're doing, or we, we uh, turn to the refuge of the coward, which is the, the smartphone. Right? We just sink into our smartphone. A protective environment. Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, though weary, starts the conversation. Again, Ryle writes, It is vain to expect that spiritually ignorant persons will voluntarily come to us and begin to seek knowledge. We must begin with them and go down to them in the spirit of courteous, listen to this, courteous and friendly aggression, he says. Courteous and friendly aggression. we must go to people and i mean let remember those words courteous and friendly aggression we must go to people in a spirit of courteous and friendly aggression he's careful to qualify aggression right with courteous and friendly but there is no way around the fact that to open somebody up to spiritual conversation we have to be aggressive we, we mustn't be discourteous, we mustn't be unfriendly. That would be to paint the faith from the outset as some angry intellectual dispute, right? And to paint yourself as some obnoxiously, intellectually bent, reformed, crunchy, cage stage, Whatever. They say that you are not supposed to talk to other people about politics and religion. Right? And many want to abide by that unspoken rule. That's why to have spiritual conversation with anybody is an act of aggression. In an age of relativism, in an age of to each his own, right? speaking to somebody about spiritual things with a specific objective which in our cases believe in Jesus Christ, is undoubtedly perceived as aggressive. It's going to be perceived as aggressive. There's no way around it. This is simply the way it will be. We have to be prepared then to be perceived as aggressive. And as a soldier of Jesus Christ, as an ambassador of the good news, we must uh, gird up our loins for evangelism, gird up our loins for... um, for, for conversation. Even friendly and courteous conversation. And that is precisely what we witness in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. And it begins with a favor or a command. A request for a drink, which in the end would be the entire subject of the conversation. Water. Now she's, she's a Samaritan. She's a dirty Samaritan, right? What does that mean? There, there, that means there is some cultural intensity between her people and Jesus' people, a Jew, right? Notice in verse 9, that parenthetical statement, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right? There is a breach in this um, contact the very request of Jesus was breaking the norm, right? No Jew would want to drink out of a vessel that had been used by a Samaritan. That's the issue here. Well, why? Why? What's the history here? Well, we have to go back in Israel's history uh, to figure this out. In 722 BC, significant date in Israel's history, Assyria's Sargon takes Samaria, Right, the capital of the northern kingdom. The Jews are forced out of their land. They're dispersed throughout the cities of the Medes. The poorest of the Jews are allowed to stay in the land of Israel. Foreigners then come into the land of Israel where those poor Jews live, Right, and they intermarry. Okay, those poor Jews that had stayed in the land, the foreigners that had come in to occupy the land, intermarry. Uh, To this mixed population was given the name Samaritan after Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom. Hendrickson then explains what this meant for the region of, of this people. Listen to this. The colonists from foreign lands were not pleased with conditions as they found them. They found the country overrun by wild beasts and they correctly ascribed this plague to the displeasure of Jehovah whom they had offended. They begged their monarch to send them an Israelite as priest who would then teach them the law of the God of the land. And so it came about that an adulterated Judaism was grafted onto the pagan cult. When a remnant of the Jews returned to the land of the fathers, chiefly but not exclusively from those who had been deported in the Babylonian exile of 586, they built an They built an altar of burnt offering and laid the foundation of the temple. Jealous Samaritans at that time and their allies interrupted their work. That can be read about in Ezra 3 and 4. The reason for this was that they had been refused permission to cooperate in the work of the rebuilding. No, you can't. You've intermarried. You can't help us rebuild. They had asked, let us build with you, for we seek seek your God as you do, and we sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezra king of Assyria, who brought us up from the land. The answer which they had received was as follows, you have nothing to do with us in building a house unto our God. Having received this blunt refusal, the Samaritans hated the Jews. Nehemiah chapter 4, 1 and 2 and subsequently built their own temple right on top of Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, right? This was destroyed by one of the Maccabean rulers about the year 128 B.C. So when Jesus is here and they look up on Mount Gerizim, they're just ruins of this temple. Right, the worshippers, however, continued to offer their adorations on the summit of the hill where the sacrifice, uh, the the sacrificing edifice had stood. So all of that history is wrapped up in this conversation with this Samaritan woman. It's it's the seven hundred years of Jewish history that preceded. That's wrapped up in this. She is feeling awkward because of it. Jesus, not so much. Right? He plows forward. History can always get in the way of evangelism. Right? History gets in the way of evangelism. I suppose today, as a white male, right? I'm not supposed to think I'm right about anything, let alone get other to, people to accept what I'm preaching. Right? Uh, This kind of situation is as old as the hills, right? And and it is a technique of the devil to to get us to stop speaking about the truth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. Part of our friendly aggressiveness needs to be the setting aside of cultural dissonance, right? And, And speaking the truth of God in every situation we go into, come what may. Now, in our text, we see that the disciples are away getting food in the city. Uh, But I thought Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. What's going on here? It seems like the disciples are off being pragmatists and setting aside their Jewishness. Well, the Pharisees, like you know, had ways of getting around some dealings. And so they allowed the Jews... Uh, To buy food from the Pharisees, but they didn't allow, what they didn't allow was drinking from the same vessel or container. This is probably what the Samaritan woman is confused by. When Jesus asks her for a drink, it would mean that he would have to uh, allow him to drink from her container. The Samaritan woman objects How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Now, Jesus, having brought about this conversation, launches deeper into the conversation. He says "He says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And, and like Nicodemus before her, this statement is confusing to the woman. Right? Jesus is pushing the conversation, he's drawing her in, and certainly he's not answering all the questions that were popping in her mind. What is this gift of God? Who is this guy? You know, what is living water? Um, what is he talking about? Um, though these questions may be going through her mind, she determines to assume he's just speaking about getting some water still. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Right? But then her curiosity breaks through. Jesus has her attention. Where then do you get that living water?" Right that's where, that's where her first question of curiosity comes out: "Where do you get this living water?" Yet her mind goes back to these questions popping up, the awkwardness of the situation with a Jew. She says, "You are, no, you are not greater than our Father Jacob) <laughs> She has no idea what she's saying there, right? You are not greater than our father Jacob. Are you who gave us the, the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle, right? Son of God is with her and she's like boasting that Jacob's cattle drank from that well. Well, now she's getting all historical and probably a bit superstitious. She's claiming some connection to Jacob and then speaking of the fact that this well has been a blessing to their people since way back when Jacob brought his sons and his cattle there to water, right? She needed to have that. As a Samaritan, they needed to have some connection to the patriarchs. And so this well was their payoff for that, right? They could claim Jacob. How could something that had been so long a blessing uh, to them be outdone by some other well or some other person? She's She's incredulous that Jesus, this weary and ordinary looking Jew, could have anything better than what they have there. Jesus, again, with friendly aggression continues to push his point without much explanation. He does, though, make a comparison between uh, this woman, what this woman has and what he has to offer. He says, "Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life." You think the water's good here, right? That trickle of water, you have to, it's a deep, deep well, it says, because there's not much water there. And he's just like, I'll give you water and it'll just be this geyser. The water of this natural well they were looking at has the power to quench thirst for a moment of time. The water that Jesus is offering this woman, that living water, has the power to quench thirst for all time. So powerful is that living water that it will produce, in the one who drinks of it, eternal life. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself as the living water. Or more precisely, I think he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Why do I think the living water refers to the Spirit? Because of the previous passage in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, there Jesus says, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Spirit regenerates, the Spirit cleanses, the Spirit purifies the soul of the one upon whom it is poured. Right? Calvin explains, though the name water is borrowed from the present occurrence and applied to the Spirit, Yet this metaphor is very frequent in Scripture and rests on the best grounds. For we are like a dry and barren soil. There is no sap and no rigor in us until the Lord water us by his Spirit. In another passage, the Spirit is likewise called clean water, but in a different sense, namely because he washes and cleanses us from the pollutions with which we are entirely covered. But in this and similar passages, The subject treated is of the secret, listen to what he says, the subject treated of is the secret energy by which he restores life in us and maintains and brings it to perfection. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the Spirit being poured out. That's the Spirit. That's the living water, right, that comes into the soul. And So the Holy Spirit is the water and Jesus has the authority to give that Spirit to give that water. He has authority over the Spirit. Physical water may quench the thirst of our mouths, but this living water will quench the thirst of our souls, our souls that are sin-enslaved, our righteousness-parched souls, right? So many people seek to quench their soul thirst, but they do so by trying to put something created in the place of the Creator, right? That's Always what happens. This is the main message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Right there, Solomon writes, God has set eternity in man's heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. As Solomon sought for religious contentments and vibes from wine and women and knowledge and work, right, so many people. Just like Solomon, so many people pour themselves into those pursuits with a very religious conviction. Their salvation, they think, is tied to what they feel, to what they know, to what they do. Right? But Jesus makes it clear that salvation comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of man. Without this living water, everything in this life is an attempt to put something in the place of God. Is this not true in your experience, right? Have you not, have you, know, have you known people who are so devoted to money that they worship it, right? Have you, have you known people who are so devoted to coolness, just being cool, like being likable, that they spend every waking hour figuring out how to, how to be cool? Staying up with the latest fads, right? Getting the right haircut. Having the right clothes. That's a religious devotion to those things. Have you known people who are so devoted to virtue signaling that they make it a God that must be served with a law that severely punishes those who go against it? That's a religious devotion. We've battled our own covetousness. We know this battle in our own hearts. We've battled with our own false gods. And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again by the water and the spirit. You must have this living water poured out upon you or you will never turn from your idols to worship the true and living God. This is just pounded in the gospel of John. We're gonna keep coming back to this theme, back and back and back and back again to this theme. Spirit's gotta work, God's gotta work or you're dead in your sins. It's very simple. The woman, the Samaritan woman, still seemingly thinking that Jesus is talking about physical thirst, says, sir, or really the word there is Lord, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. It's such sweet ignorance, right? Um, she's, she's, not, she's not clued in. And then there's a critical shift here in Jesus' approach. This is what you should notice. There's a critical shift. Jesus has opened up the door. He's he's talked in a way to to put this water idea out there, right? It's a hook. It's something that he can return to and talk about. But then there's a shift, a critical shift in his approach. Knowing her sin, he broaches the subject. Friendly aggression, a committed aggression. He said, go call your husband and come here. Just, you know, if anybody were listening, it would have just sounded like a normal command. Go get your husband and come here. Let's, you know, let's the three of us talk together. I'm sure her face must have flushed at this point. She said, I have no husband. And then Jesus opens up the floodgate. Right? Jesus at that point opens up the door. You have said correctly, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. He's gracious. You're right, you have no husband, but here's the reality of the situation. You've had five. Now, I think there's a principle here that we have to come to terms with. I don't think there is any way we can truly witness to others unless we address their sin. There's no way to do it. There's no way to do it. Right? There, we have to be committed to witness to others and, and actually address the elephant in the room. Right? The very sin that that person you're speaking to Loves and is committed to as a religious principle. It's the thing that keeps them from turning to God. It's the thing that must be dashed, right? It's the thing that they must turn away from. As much as we don't like to do it, there must come a point when we address someone, address the homosexual's perversion. Right? and the drunkard's bottle, and the narcissist's selfishness, Right, and the feminist's ugly hatred, and, and the greedy person's idol, and the angry man's ripped-up knuckles that correspond to the bruises on his kids' and wife's backs, and the gossip's loose lips, right? and, and the effeminate man's limp-wristedness. And the young man or woman's fornication and masturbation. And the the arrogant person's pride. I mean, they have to be addressed at some point. And the reason we do so is that the law leads people to see their need of Jesus Christ. Jesus is bringing the seventh commandment to bear on the Samaritan woman. That's what he's doing. He's bringing in the seventh commandment. She is a serial adulterer. She has gone from man to man and perhaps before Jesus came along she was quite fine with that. But with the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Calvin says, such persons will regard the doctrine of Christ as a fable until being summoned to the judgment seat of God they are compelled to dread Him as a judge whom they formerly despised. And all of us are like, man, maybe I don't have the gift of evangelism. (laughs) And here, though, is the difficulty, as you already know. No one wants to be confronted with their sin. No one wants to be confronted with their sin. or Rather, no one wants to be told that that which is precious to them is that which will lead to their eternal death unless they repent. No one wants to take their precious and turn from it so that they might escape eternal death. How dare you is the common response, right? How dare you? How many of your relatives or friends have said that to you? How dare you bring this up? We can learn from Jesus' example here. Again, as I said before, he's aggressive, he brings up her sin, but also friendly, rile- Again, remarking on this example says we must be kind in manner and beware of showing, listen to this, and beware of showing that we feel ourselves conscious of our own superiority. You cannot witness if you feel superior to everybody else. I'd put it this way, when we witness to sinners, we must be well aware of our own sin and the incredible grace God has shown to us. We must learn to witness in a way that though we don't avoid addressing another person's sin, we somehow don't convey the sense that we are above such a sin or utterly disgusted by another sin. Oh man, we do this all the time. What sin, though, are you not capable of committing? Brothers and sisters, what sin are you not capable of committing? It's a very short list. Has the devil convinced you that you are somehow not capable of unkindness or not capable of of gossip or rebellion or grumbling or abortion or greed or murder? Has the devil convinced you of that? Does Jesus' Sermon on the Mount have any application to the Christian church? (laughs) I remember early in my tenure here at Trinity, I gave the example of being so angry at my, my first daughter when she was a newborn, and she screamed every night, and she screamed every morning, and she screamed. And screamed and screamed, and she's so sweet now, it's, you wouldn't believe it. She was our hardest child. She screamed, and there were times when I was so angry that I could have thrown her against a wall. And I remember the church at that time being so scandalized by, by me saying that. I got so much flack for that. How, how, what, what kind of a pastor could you be? Everyone in this room is capable of that kind of sin. Anger is a burning fire. Right? That's why it's called a crime of passion when you kill. Because in a matter of seconds, you let your heart inform your hands and your arms. And but for the grace of God, I did not throw Anna against a wall. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. There have only been a few times since then, now that she's grown up, that I've wanted to do the same thing, but at completely different reasons. (laughs) No. (laughs) Look, look, what sin are you not capable of? And John Owen would concur with everything I've said. Right? We've been reading John Owen, man, and he would completely concur with this. Right? That it, this is a fierce battle. Okay? And so we must remember that. We must know ourselves, we must remember that when we witness. First Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor ad- nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ And in the spirit of our God, such were some of you. Yes, there's sanctification. Yes, there is a change of nature. Yes, there there is a, a growth in grace. Yes, those things are true. But sin still dwells within us. There is still indwelling sin. We witness as sinners to sinners, and if we have a sense of superiority over any other sinner, we've just sabotaged our witness to God's grace and kindness. What a shame it is when we witness with disgust in our hearts for sinners. Oh, Do you think that pleases the Lord? Do you think that He's going to bless what we're doing at that moment? When we're just disgusted by somebody's sin? What a contradiction, right? Our witness should be just as the Apostle Paul's to Timothy. He wrote, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And he goes on, he says this, Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him to eternal life. Right? I mean, it's being the foremost sinner forgiven by God that gives you any, any success, any possibility of being a good witness. So I'm more and more convinced that many Christians have more gifting in this area than others. Okay. Um, some of us have not yet killed our pride; or rather, had our pride killed by God's discipline. And, and so witnessing in this aggressively friendly way is nearly impossible, right? If you're if you're proud, if that's one of your besetting sins of looking down upon others. Wait till God sanctifies you before you begin witnessing. I know that sounds terrible, right? Uh, And and I'm not saying that any Christian doesn't have an obligation to share Christ, but, but I am saying that some should get to work against their own sins before they get to work on other people's sins, right? The fact of the matter is witnessing can't be done without addressing sin, But the manner of our addressing sin must be born of humility and thankfulness for God's kindness to us, though our sins are many. So, for those of you who want to witness, right, who want to practice evangelism, you can't be the kind of person who is scandalized by the sins of the world. You just can't be. You must be the kind of person who knows that you have yourself committed terrible sins and are capable of worse sins still. You must be a repenting Christian, right, before you are an evangelizing Christian. Further still, a repenting Christian has has tasted of the living water. Right? A repenting Christian knows the necessity of the blood of Jesus Christ. A repenting Christian knows that Christ is a pearl of great price, which means that a repenting Christian is animated, right? is fueled up to share his Savior. He counts everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And so the repenting Christian their heart breaks to see the death of any sinner outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, if, if those who are scandalized by the sins of sinners are not very able to witness, those who are not entranced with a view of the glory of Christ are not very able evangelists either. Right? If we don't fill our minds with Christ's glory, we will be unprepared to share him. Right? We'll just mumble through with dispassionate sort of, you know, nothings. They won't see love in our eyes. They won't see a, a, a soul that is, is, is trembling with excitement and speaking about Jesus. We can, be crudish, we can be prudish Christians, right? Who, like the Pharisees, turn their noses up at sinners. Right? We can be prudish Reformed Christians, especially. and Turn our noses up at sinners. We can be dull Christians, too, who, who like the, the members of the church in Laodicea described in Revelation 3, are lukewarm and ready to be spit out. Spit out of Jesus' mouth. So we mustn't lose sight of the the kindness of Christ that moves us to repentance and the glory of Christ that fills our heart with this longing, love, and fear of him. And then then we'll be able to, to practice evangelism as Jesus our Lord does here. Right, And so, so we, we must know, we must not be scandalized by sin. We must know our own hearts. We must fight against that indwelling sin. We must also simultaneously fuel ourselves up by the reading of the word, by sitting under the preaching, by prayer, by meditation, filling our minds with the glory of Jesus Christ so that when we are there witnessing, we are so overcome with the fact that this is a sinner who needs help and I have the glorious Jesus Christ who can help. And then evangelize. Right? Then speak of Jesus. Then open the scriptures. Then ask a provocative question. Then ask for a request. Right? Then try to wheedle in. And maybe the Holy Spirit opens up that person's heart. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe it doesn't lead to something. But you've planted a seed, right? And maybe you get another chance to talk to that person. And And you ask another provocative question and it comes out and then you just say, okay, now it's time for me just to be in a friendly, kind way say, yeah, but you're gay, aren't you? Do you know that that sin will lead you to eternal death? Unless you repent. And we all get nervous thinking about that. Right? Or do you know, you... you, you seem to be so committed to the idol of your work. And give so sh- you give nothing to Jesus. You give nothing to God. I mean, don't you think this is right? And, and, and see what happens and trust the Lord and pray, right? And if you evangelize, have other people praying for you as you do that work, All right. Let's leave the passage at that. We'll leave things there. We'll come back to this passage uh, at some time in the future, Lord willing. Let's, Let's pray.